Amen. Amen. Lord, that is our prayer this morning. Lord, we know that left to ourselves, we, we tend to wander. And Lord, left to ourselves, we can so easily get our eyes off of you and focus on the things that don't matter. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning as we go to your word, help us, Lord, to, to be focused on you, to get our eyes on you, to be desperate for you. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning. Lord, I thank you that we're all here this morning by divine appointment, that nobody here is here by chance. And Lord, I pray there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that even now you begin to soften hearts. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to see you. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. We continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. So as we go through chapters like we're we're going through now, and as we're going to continue to go through, as we go through the book of Revelation, it's important that there be a balance in the way we look at things. Yes, we must understand that these chapters are in the Bible for a reason. And remember that the revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The apocalypsis means the unveiling. So as we go through Revelation, we get to better understand the character of God. And as we saw in the Gospels, the character of our Savior is He's a loving, a gracious, and a merciful God who would rather die than live without you, who suffered and died in your place and took your sin upon Himself that you might have eternal life. But as He is a loving and a gracious and a merciful God, He is also a holy God, and those things are consistent with each other. And because He is a holy God, we also see that He must judge sin. But as we even saw last week, even as he is judging sin, his heart is always to give an opportunity until we draw our last breath to repent. Amen? And so we saw even as he was bringing righteous judgment upon those in the midst of the great tribulation. Now you've got to realize, if you're in the great tribulation, you've already had a hardened heart toward God. Amen? Because you've already rejected him and you didn't go when the church went. But now, even after that has happened, there's a reason that the Great Tribulation doesn't last for seven seconds, or seven minutes, or seven days, or seven weeks, or even seven months. And it's not because God wants for man to endure more torture. It's because God's desire is that none should perish, no, not one. And there will be a great revival during the Great Tribulation. I believe the greatest revival in all of human history. And he wants to see people, even at the very last moment, be redeemed. Guys, aren't you glad that he waited until you were saved? Aren't you glad that he didn't give up on you the first or the tenth or me or the hundredth time, amen? But he kept reaching out in love. And so as we come to the chapters like this morning's, we're going to see that in all of life, this is a fact, there are two spheres of influence. There is the enemy and there's the Lord. And we are on one side or the other. There's no kind of saved, right? There's no gray area in our relationship with God. Either you know him or you don't. Either you've repented and been broken over your sin and you've turned your life to him or you continue to walk in rebellion to him. And I know when people say things like that, some 
you know, feel like that's a heavy word. But here's the reality. God loves us enough to speak directly to us so that we, we can repent. If nobody ever tells us we're sinners, we'll never see our need for a Savior. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. Amen? And so we're going to see this battle continuing. But here's the interesting part. Even as we watch, and we'll see again. Remember last week we saw, you know, the, the locusts, the demonic beings being loosed out of hell. That's pretty heavy, right? And they come out and they're tormenting men for five months. And as they torment them, they're not allowed to kill them, if you remember. And we talked about why that was. Again, it wasn't because God wanted to continually torture them. Because remember, at one point, they cry out for death and they can't have it. They want to die and he won't let them die. And we titled the message last week, Hell on Earth. Because it really was a picture of hell on earth with all the torment and the pain and the suffering and the destruction and the inability to escape it. But the lie that Satan loves to tell people today is that that death is an escape from your trials. Death is not an escape. It only makes the trials worse and more permanent. Amen? And guys, he came that we might have life and life more abundant. The God that we serve loves us so much and he desires that we walk in intimate fellowship with him that we might experience the fullness of joy, not just in heaven, but here and now. And so we saw in last week's text this heavy, you know, heavy judgment coming in that fifth bowl judgment as these creatures were coming up out of the ground and stinging them and they were in pain and they're in torment and they want to die, but they're not able to. And you would think that along with everything else that has happened, this would result in a great revival right about now. You would think, hey, if something's stinging me constantly for five months and I'm in torment and I want to die, and someone tells me, hey, remember all those Christians that went to heaven? Hey, guess what? See the 144,000 evangelists that are traveling around with a message of hope? In the midst of this despair, there's hope. And his name is Jesus Christ. And no matter what you're going through this morning, in the midst of despair, there's hope. And the only place we're going to find hope is not keeping hope alive. It's following the one who is the source of hope, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so, that was amazing. I did my entire introduction. I have 12 pages of notes. I never looked at them. All right. hopefully, Hopefully, I didn't miss anything. So, last week, we saw that contrast that Satan had one design and God had another. In the message titled, Hell on Earth, Satan opened the pit, but he could only do it after God allowed it. You remember that? What I want you to understand is the devil can't do anything unless God allows it. So God is completely and totally in control. Now he does allow that Satan to have some reign. That's why we're tempted at times. That's why we go through the trials that we go through. Now, I also want to say this, just to clarify. We can give the devil too much credit sometimes, too. Sometimes it's just plain stinking us. Amen? I mean, you know, my flesh, you know, I don't remember which pastor said it, but, you know, he says he gets up in the morning and looks in the mirror and sees the enemy. You know, because every day we've got to put the flesh to death, don't we? And there's that battle between the spirit and the flesh. And so just as the enemy is... On attack, God is in control. Satan's demonic army was let loose upon the earth, but God controlled who they could and could not touch, what they could and could not do, and for how long. 
Satan's army, demonic army, is powerful and ominous and downright scary, but to God there are simply tools in his hands who will be used for his purpose. And then finally last week we saw Satan's plan is to steal, kill, and destroy, but God's will is that sinners come to repentance and believers grow into an intimate relationship with him. So again, God will allow men to experience hell on earth so that they might repent and not have to experience it for eternity. So much better to go through a temporary trial that produces godly repentance and then restoration to him than to stay in a place of rebellion and be separated from him for all eternity. Amen? You know, often we pray for people and we pray, Lord, do whatever it takes to bring my son, my nephew, my friend, my coworker, my parents, my spouse, whoever it might be. I want to see them saved so desperately. And then a difficulty comes that God is going to use to get them to look up. And we murmur out to God, how can you let this happen to them? And he says, I'm answering your prayer. Right? You prayed. Guys, the most important thing is that people come to know Jesus and whatever it takes to get us there, bring it on. And that should be our heart, not only for others, but for ourselves. As Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. It's through the trials of life that we grow in our walk with him. So I titled the message this morning, if you're a note taker, let not your hearts be hardened. And when our Hearts are hard, and we're going to see a group of people with very hard hearts this morning. And sometimes you can learn from people what to do, and sometimes you learn what not to do. This is a not to do, right? And so what we're going to see is when our hearts become hard, we can fool ourselves into thinking that the time of God's righteous judgment will never come. Have you ever heard people say that? Oh, well, yeah, I've been hearing about that for, oh, they've been talking about that for thousands of years. It's never going to happen. Well, we're going to see that even in the Great Tribulation, as it's happening all around them, there are still those that think the judgment won't come. Secondly, we'll see that when our hearts become hard, that if his judgment, we may be thinking to ourselves, that if his judgment does come, we will somehow escape it. How many of you met those people? You talk to them about God, they say, well, I'm not really sure if God exists, but if he does, I'm sure I'm fine. Have you ever had that conversation with people? Well, because... You know, we're pretty full of ourselves, aren't we? If someone says, are you a good person? No, not really. I'm pretty wretched, actually. No, we're not going to say that. We're typically going to say, well, yeah. Especially if we don't have a biblical perspective. Well, of course I'm good. I'm no Charles Manson. I'm no Osama bin Laden. I mean, I'm, I'm a good guy. Never killed anybody, right? But you know what? God doesn't grade on a curve, as you've had me say, heard me say many times before. He grades at the cross, And it's only if we have an intimate relationship with him can we be saved. But there are those when our heart is hard. Well, I don't believe there is going to be a judgment. Oh, and if there is one, I'm sure I'll be fine. And then finally, we'll see that if our hearts become hard, even in the face of righteous judgment, we will refuse to repent. We'll just flat out refuse. Now, we've all done that. Is that true or not? We've known that God is convicting us by his Holy Spirit to repent from some behavior in our life, and we make excuses for why it's okay to continue on in it. But we're going to see here that those who have hardened their heart, those who are lost, eternity is hanging in the balance, and we're going to see them all but shaking their fists at God as they absolutely refuse to repent, even in the light of all that God has done. So let's begin there in verse 13. 
And we're going to begin by looking at, we, fool our, we can fool ourselves into thinking that the time of God's righteous judgment will never come. Let our hearts not be hardened to the voice of the Lord. It says there in verse 13, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. As we saw in previous weeks, when the seven uh, judgments began, when these seven trumpet judgments began, that each of these seven angels was standing before the throne. And when God would instruct them, it was time to pour out their judgment or sound their trumpet that began their judgment. And when that judgment began, God brought heavy, uh, heaviness upon the earth. And again, which, with each of these judgments, he was bringing righteous judgment upon unrepentance and sinfulness, but he was also giving an opportunity for people to be saved for people to re- to look up and recognize you know what i need to get right with god now this altar of incense as we have seen in the old testament tabernacle and then later in the temple which is a model of heaven the bible tells us the golden altar is that altar of incense which is a representation of the prayers of god's people if you're a member the whole if you go into the tabernacle right Outside, you have the bronze altar where the sacrifices were made. And then when you walk in, and the bronze laver next to it where the priest would cleanse himself, then they would walk into the holy place. Not the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, but the holy place. And in the holy place, there were three furnishings. You had the golden lampstand. You had the table of showbread. And then right next to the curtain that led into the holy of holies was this altar of incense. And what the priest would do is twice a day, he would take some of the, the hot coals off the bronze altar, he would bring them into the holy place, and he would use those hot coals to ignite the incense that would then produce a sweet-smelling aroma that would go up and over the veil and into the very presence of God, which is what the, the, you know, the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant represented. And we talked about a few weeks ago that isn't it interesting that what ignited the incense, what lit the the prayers that were able to enter into the presence of God first had to be ashes or coals that came from the place of sacrifice because without the sacrifice of God, without a forgiveness of our sin, we cannot enter into intimate fellowship with the Lord. God does not hear the prayers of the unsaved. Wow. What kind of God do you serve? I'll tell you what kind we serve. A holy one. And a holy God cannot have sin in his presence. And that's why Jesus died, so we can enter in. So it's at that altar that he's looking out at, this place where the prayers of the people in the tabernacle and the old testament model and the earthly model represented the prayers of the people and it's at that place stationed in that holy place that we're going to see this judgment begin notice what it says there a voice from the four horns of the golden altar a voice and it really in greek it's one voice It's one voice, stressing that John heard a single solitary voice. And while the voice is not identified, we don't know for sure who is speaking, this voice which comes from the altar of God, 
Many believe, and I'm with the group that believes this, that this voice is Jesus Christ himself. Because we've seen in previous references to this altar that Jesus is there. And we know that Jesus is the one who took the seals. And what's interesting, the voice is coming from the four horns. Now, those four horns, they were just little, you know, things that stuck up on the edges of the altar. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went into the holy place, even before he went into the Holy of Holies, he would take the blood of the sacrifice on that one day a year and put the blood on all four of those horns. Now, he had no idea what that was pointing to, but when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he bled from four points, right? The four points of the cross, his hands, his feet, and from his head. Of course, later his side as well. But there's a picture there very clearly of the cross. And so to me, the fact that the voice comes, it says from these four horns, speaking from the cross, who in the world would that be? To me, it's very clearly Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the one who is commanding that this judgment take place. So when people read things like this, they say, well, the Jesus I know would never bring judgment. Well, then you don't know Jesus. Because the Jesus of the Bible is a righteous judge. Now, he's a loving Savior. He's a merciful God. But he's also holy, so he must be a righteous judge. So we see this picture standing near the throne. We see the Lord is there now speaking, and, it, and it's at his urging, at his command, This is what's going to happen. So where does it come from? Where does the source of this voice come from? From the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. In the tabernacle and temple, again, this is the altar of incense. But in Revelation 6, earlier in John's vision, this is the place where the martyrs pleaded with God for vengeance on their murderers. You guys remember that? This is a place of prayer. And those who had lived during the great tribulation were martyred for their faith. Remember, God put a seal on the 144,000 and protected them, but there will be others who are saved, and the Bible says that they will be beheaded. So they're going to lose their lives. And in Revelation 6, these martyrs in heaven are crying out to the Lord to bring vengeance upon those who have killed them. In Revelation 8, 5, it became an altar, the same altar, an altar of judgment, as the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth that set in in the stage for all of the trumpet judgments that we are now looking at. So there's a clear connection between the prayers of God's people and end times events. Guys, what do we pray? What's one of our prayers? Maranatha, what does that mean? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Can I tell you, after this last year, come on, amen? Come on down. Heaven's looking really good right about now, amen? And you know what? I do believe that's true, too, that God will allow us to go through trials so that we don't get too comfortable in the place that isn't our home. Guys, this is not our home. You've all heard that story of the missionary. He was on the mission field for many, many years, and he comes home, He's been gone for 50 years. He comes home and, and he thinks that there's a big band of people out there and they're blowing trumpets and horn and there's this big parade and he thinks it's for him. He's been gone 50 years. He thinks, wow, the people in my church have all gotten together to welcome me home. And then he realizes when he gets off the boat that the president of the United States was on the same boat with him. 
and it was not for him at all. And as he was walking away, he was feeling a little heartbroken that he didn't get a very good homecoming. And as he was walking away, the Lord impressed upon his heart, my son, you're not home yet. Guys, our homecoming is coming in heaven, amen? And it's going to be way better than a bunch of people blowing on horns and beating on drums, amen? We're going to be in the presence of Almighty God. But I want you to see something, that the tribulation saints are praying from this altar, from this position, this altar, and their prayer is, revenge me, avenge me, O Lord. And again, that's during the great tribulation, but I believe that God would tell us that that should not be our prayer at all. I believe our prayer should be more focused on praising God and crying out for Him to pour out His love and grace and mercy upon those who are still lost. Justice and judgment will come in due time, but while we still have time, we should be praying for personal brokenness and spiritual revival. Our prayer ought to be not Lord get them, but Lord save them. Amen? Get them, Lord. Anybody ever prayed that? In my, I'm sorry. You got, you, my pastor's a jerk. Sometimes. You know, get, don't we do that? We can get in our flesh and someone does something, you know, bad to us. And we're like, man, you know, hell's going to be hot for that guy. You know, but that's not, that is not the heart of God. Amen. The heart of God is not get them. It's save them. It's redeem them. It's draw them unto yourself. And so even these martyrs in heaven are crying out. So shockingly, from the altar associated with prayer and mercy will come words of judgment. And we're about to see them, and they're going to be heavy. And again, God is a merciful, gracious, and compassionate God, yet His Spirit will not strive with man forever. The Bible says that. His Spirit will not strive with man forever, and that's in the book of Genesis. So at the very beginning, after man had sent, God said, I will not strive with man forever. But here we are some 6,000 years later, showing that he has been patient, he has been merciful, he has been gracious, but the time of judgment is coming. When this trumpet judgment that we're about to look at occurs, the time of mercy for those who its judgment will fall upon will have passed, and the altar of mercy will have become an altar of judgment. And sinful men will have finally and completely rejected God's grace, and offer of salvation will face the consequences of their sin. Let me read something to you out of Hebrews chapter 10. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people." And then it says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those who rejected the simple law of Moses will face righteous judgment. How much more are we responsible who live today? Guys, we have more access to God's word than anybody who's ever lived. We have churches on every corner. Most of us have multiple Bibles at home. We got Bible software. We got Christian radio. We got Christian. I mean, boy, we just have the Lord all around us and access to, to the ability to be discipled and grow like people never in human history. And how much more accountable are we? Because none of us will be able to stand before God on Judgment Day and say, No one ever told me. 
I never really heard that. Jesus, who's that? Never heard of him, right? That's not going to happen. So guys, we're accountable. And I share that because each of us needs to take a moment and examine our own hearts before him. Because we're not going to get to heaven because we came and sat in some soft blue chairs on a Sunday. We're not going to get to heaven because somebody drug us to church or even we came of our own free will. Salvation doesn't come by works. It comes by faith and, and surrendering our life to Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at this judgment that is coming. And so this voice speaks in verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the voice from the four horns of the altar commands the release of these four angels who are bound. Now, what kind of angels are bound? Demons, fallen angels, demonic angels, right? The holy angels of God are not bound because they walk in the center of God's will and do only as he instructs them. But as you remember, when Satan fell, as he tried to overthrow God in heaven, that a third of the angels fell with him. And as we know, many of them are bound in hell today. Many believe that it's the worst ones that are bound. So as bad as things are, imagine what's going to happen when hell is emptied during the Great Tribulation. We saw it last week when they would be coming up out, these locust-type of demons, right, would be coming out and bringing torture and torment. Well, here's four more that are bound at the river Euphrates. Now, the river Euphrates, something that we all should be familiar with in Scripture. It's, it's extremely significant in the Old Testament. Um, we know that it begins or rises from this river that still exists today, obviously, from the sources near Mount Ararat in Turkey. What do, what, where do we see the term Mount Ararat listed in Scripture? Talking about what? Noah's Ark, where Noah's Ark rested. If this is the same Mount Ararat, that's exactly where Noah's Ark is. The Euphrates flows more than 1,700 miles before emptying into the Persian Gulf. It's one of the longest and most important rivers in the Middle East, and it figures prominently in the Old Testament because this is one of the four rivers which the river that flowed out of the Garden of Eden divided into. So the ultimate source for this river was the Garden of Eden. So it's there that sin began, that the first lie was told, that the first murder was committed, that the Tower of Babel was built, which is the first organized result, revolt against God. The region near Euphrates was the central location of three world powers that opposed God and Israel, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Medo-Persians. It was on the banks of the Euphrates that Israel endured 70 long, bitter, wearisome years of captivity. And it is the river over which the enemies of God will cross to engage in the battle of Armageddon that we will look at later on in this book. And it's the place where these four bound and fallen angels reside right now. And they're waiting to be released at God's command and to be instruments of his righteous judgment. So what's going to happen when they're released? Look at verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. What? A third of mankind. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. 
But right now, I went on the internet, so as accurate as that is, there's 6.8 billion people on the planet. Now, after the rapture of the church, how many people will be left? I don't know. I hope there's a great revival. And I hope a lot more get raptured. Amen? But after the rapture of the church, there will be somewhere, my guesstimate, I hope I'm wrong, between 5 and 6 billion people left on the earth. Now, of those people that are left on the earth, we know that a quarter of them will die in judgments prior to this one. So if there's 5 billion people, one and a quarter of a billion will die from previous judgments that have taken place. And now there will be a little less than 4 billion people left on the earth. So that means a third of them, you're looking at 1.3 billion people dying in this trumpet judgment. 1.3 billion dying. Heavy. Now remember that before we came to this, we had the five months where nobody died. Where God had suspended death from the planet. And while the people were crying out to die, it was God's opportunity for them to be saved. But having rejected his free gift of salvation, not repenting, not turning, continuing to shake their fists at God, he now brings righteous judgment upon the earth. And just with this one trumpet judgment, a third will die. Now, again, the fact that a third died, and we see earlier, you know, a third of the rivers and a third of the sea and a third of the, the moon, and a third of the sun. Why a third? Let me tell you why. To show us that God is in complete and total control. These are not accidental natural disasters that bring about some kind of event. God is in control of even natural disasters. I've had people debate me of that. Well, God had nothing to do with Katrina. Are you kidding me? You're telling me that God didn't know that was going to happen? Did God know? What's the answer? If he doesn't know anything, he's not God. Amen? He knows everything. And he allows it. Now, that's where people go, wait a minute, people died. That's horrible. It is horrible. And all the more reason we as believers ought to be burdened to share our faith with every person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Because guess what? One out of every one person dies. Amen? We're all going to die someday. We're all going to stand before Almighty God. And so it's important to note that not only is God sovereign, that he is in complete and total control, he's not just an interested observer, but he's fully invested and involved. And if he let go for even a second, it would be the immediate destruction of everything. The Bible says he holds the universe in the span of his hand. That's the God we serve. Guys, I know I need to fear God more. How about you? I think that's one of the biggest things that, that is why we struggle so much. We don't fear God as much as we should. We're going to get to heaven, and he's going to be way greater. That's not, those aren't even right words, but he's going to be way greater than we think. Amen? There's not a doubt in my mind I'm going to get to heaven and see him and go, I should have prayed more. He was on my side. What was I thinking trying to do it myself? when I could have had him helping me out. I mean, we know that to some extent, but when we get to heaven, I know we're going to be blown away. Not only do we see the sovereignty of God, but the holiness of God, as he must judge those who reject his repeated offers of grace and mercy and forgiveness. So they were released to kill a third 
of mankind. So as these demonic forces are released from their bondage, they set out no doubt. Now, do you think these demons probably think they're doing the will of, of Satan? And in a sense, they are, because what does Satan come to do? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so who are they killing? Those who have chosen to align themselves with Satan. This is how Satan lures you in, promising you peace and pleasure, and he delivers death and destruction. He's the liar. He's the father of lies. Amen? And so these demons go about and they think they're doing the will of their master in a sense, right? Their leader, Satan. And actually, God is using them to bring about his perfect will. Not unlike when he used the Babylonians to bring Israel into captivity. God was in control. The Babylonians were godless, but God still used them to bring about his perfect will. So instead of murmuring about somebody who... Maybe God is allowing to bring us to a place of difficulty. We need to say, okay, God, you're sovereign. Instead of saying, we've heard me say this before, instead of saying why, my question needs to be what. Not why is this happening, but Lord, what do you want me to learn? What do you want to teach me through this? So this is not some kind of satanic plot at work. God has prepared these angels, is in control, as they unleash their judgment upon the world. And again, Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. Again, the demonic locusts described earlier in the chapter were restricted to tormenting mankind, but these angels will be able to kill. Kill a third of mankind again. One quarter of the world's post-rapture population will already be dead. And after this trumpet, more than half of the people who are on the planet at the time of the rapture will be dead. And I don't want to be too gruesome, but imagine what that's going to be like. I'm so glad I won't be here. But imagine what that's going to be like. Imagine three billion dead bodies. Where do you put them? What does the world smell like? What does it look like? What a mess. It truly is going to be hell on earth. But the good news is there'll still be time to repent. It won't be too late. After the church is raptured, we can't know for sure how many people will be left. We do know what's facing them is going to be overwhelming. The terrible slaughter will completely disrupt human society. The problem of disposing of the dead bodies alone will be inconceivable. And again, I can't imagine what that will be like. The enormous effort on part of the survivors to dispose of the bodies. But more significantly, significantly, how will the survivors cope emotionally and spiritually? We'll address that later on in the chapter. So first part, let not your hearts be hardened. When our hearts become hard, we can fool ourselves into thinking that the time of God's righteous judgment will never come. As we saw there, it was the hour, the day, the month, the year. God had foreordained and fixed this time and place before the foundation of the world. Guys, our God is in control completely. Point number two, that if his judgment does come, If our hearts are hardened, we might think that we'll somehow escape it. Look at verse 16. It says, Now the number of the army of horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. So the slaughter of over a billion people will require 
an unimaginably powerful force. And John reports here that the number of the armies of the horsemen was an astonishing 200 million. Now some debate whether this is a human army over which these demons take control or an army of demonic beings. It really depends on whether or not you look at this, these verses literally or symbolically. If you think they just picture something else. Some people believe this is a, a human army, and what he's about to describe are weapons, like tanks. And Now, that could be. I personally don't think so. I personally think, just like the insects flying out of the ground that people think are Apache helicopters, I think they're insects flying out of the ground. And I think that what we're about to see is exactly what it says here. He says light because he can't fully describe it, but I believe they're demonic beings. And here's the reality. Though China has claimed at one point to have a 200 million man army, most doubt the truth behind that. And right now, that wouldn't happen. There's, there, no, there is no 200 million men anywhere around. But I, and I believe that they are demonic beings. But in either case, God is going to use them to bring about his will. It says, I heard the number of them. Some people believe that means that John was told how many there were. That army you see, there's 200 million. That might be true. Some also believe that what he's saying is, I heard them. Can you imagine what a 200 million man or demonic army sounds like when it's moving around? And I believe that's what it really means, more than likely. But in either case, we know that it's 200 million because the Bible says so, and that's enough. Amen? Verse 17, and thus I saw the horses in the vision, this vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. So those who think they're weapons say, you know, here's John 2,000 years ago having never seen a weapon like this, and he sees fire blowing out of a, you know, some kind of a weapon cannon blowing off a a tank whatever and this is his way of trying to describe it and again i guess that's possible but truthfully i don't think that's it i think the bible is pretty clear that these are are actually demonic beings who are being used by god to bring about his righteous judgment now if you'll notice that that this army has riders with fiery red, hyacinth blue, that blue there is a dark blue or black like smoke, and sulfur yellow, the color of brimstone, rock, when ignited produces a burning flame and suffocating gas. So these riders have fiery red, smoke blue, and sulfur yellow breastplates, and these are the very colors and features of hell. They paint a horrifying picture of God's wrath being poured out on a sinful world. Note, while it's God's divine judgment, it's the demons who are destroying the very people who chose to follow them. Then it says, The horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and brimstone. It's clear that these are not normal, everyday horses, right? I've yet to see a horse with the head of a lion, right? But Satan, Bible says, roams about like a roaring what? Lion. This is why I believe this is demonic. Seeking whom he may devour. He looks and he sees what looks like the head of a lion on a horse and it's breathing fire. These demon forces like lions will fiercely and relentlessly stalk and slaughter their victims. Verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and the smoke 
and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. So John notes the three ways the demon horses killed their victims, all of which picture the violent, devastating fury of hell. Incinerating them with fire or asphyxiating them with smoke and brimstone. This is not fun. This is not a good time. Again, you'll talk to people and say, well, yeah, I hope I'm a tribulation saint. I want to be here to stand for God. You're a braver man than me. How I, You know, I think I'll go to heaven. I'm thinking heaven good. Amen? And God's going to raise up 144,000. His word's going to go out with power. And, you know, I think I'll sit this one out. I think heaven sounds pretty good. Amen? But notice... As if this description he was given, given him so far is not enough, John sees more about the deadly power of these demons. Look at verse 19. For the power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. This is one messed up horse. You've got a lion's head and a serpent's tail. Satan is a roaring what? Lion? And in... How does he appear in the garden? As a serpent. This to me is, I mean, hey, maybe I'm wrong. I'll find out when we get to heaven. I'm glad I won't be here to find out either way. But this to me looks very clearly like this is a demonic force of two, can you imagine 200 million of these? Breathing fire out of the front, biting with the serpent's bite out of the back, venomous bites. Who knows how big they were? Man, no thanks. Now, all this is happening. Now, if I were here, and I'm glad I won't be, I'm thinking this would be a good time to cry out, Lord, help. Amen? I'm thinking that would be my, help, 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 help. That would be my prayer right there. There's my prayer life. Help! It's not good. Forgive me. Help! But what's amazing is that even in the midst of this supernatural judgment of God, even as billions, over a billion anyway, will die all around them, I want you to see just how hard the hearts of these people are. Let not your hearts be hardened. We may fool ourselves into thinking that the time of God's righteous judgment will never come, that if His judgment does come, we'll somehow escape it. Because you know what? When this comes to an end, a third of the people that are left have died, but two-thirds are still alive. And that's why I would think that many of them at that point would go, okay, enough's enough. That's it. That's good for me. I'm good. I'm done. I'm pulling the ripcord. Okay, save me. I'm good. Had enough doing it my own way. This isn't working out too good. But notice what happens instead. Even in the face of righteous judgment, when our heart is hard, we will refuse to repent. Look at verse 20. But the rest of of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor walk. Now, this is a sad but almost funny picture. Can you imagine at the end of all that they have been through, they run over and grasp a hold of their porcelain monkey? Or whatever it is, right? Oh, you'll save me. I carved you out this morning and I gave you a good polish, so I'm hanging on to you. And we laugh, but how tragic is that? And this, you know, guys, that's a reality in much of the world today. 
I've had the privilege to go to India four times, and it breaks my heart. I'll never forget the image of this guy sit on his knees right in front of an elephant god, tears running down his face as he's praying to this, I don't know what it was made out of, marble, pour, I don't know what it was made of, but it, you know what? It's a dead god. It's not God. Amen? How tragic. I just wanted to reach out and tell him there's hope. I didn't speak Hindi, so I was unable to do it, but it just breaks my heart. So more shocking than the locusts with lion's teeth and scorpions, tails coming out of them, out of the bottomless pit. More, more shocking to me than anything I've read so far in the book of Revelation are these two verses. That after all of this, men will still not repent. We often think, if only God did this, then everyone would repent. Here's proof that that's not true. Because it's not the miracles that save people, it's the word of God going forth with power, the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and people repenting. Guys, that's why we don't necessarily need miracle crusades. We need word of God crusades because miracles don't bring salvation. The word of God does. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. And so here's what's happening. Even after they have seen all they've seen, all they've heard, all they've experienced, they do not repent. Notice it says, they did not repent. It, didn't say, it doesn't say they could not repent. If they could not repent, that would mean God wasn't allowing them to. They did not repent, which means they're choosing not to. Now, this is amazing in light of all that had happened. Let me just put you in their shoes for a moment. In less than seven years, here's what they have seen. All the Christians disappearing and all the related consequences. When the church is raptured, no doubt some planes will crash. There'll be car accidents everywhere. There'll be complete and total mayhem as however many hundreds of thousands, if not hopefully billions of people disappear from the face of the earth and people are trying to figure out what in the world happened. But shortly after that, there'll be a huge economic collapse. Then the rise of the Antichrist. Then war and famine. Then a fourth of the world's population destroyed by the sword and famine, disease, and wild beasts. Then there'll be earthquakes worse than any in human history. Then the sun will turn black. The moon will turn red. Stars will be falling out of the sky and hitting the earth. The sky will be rolled up. Every mountain and island will be moved out of its place. Men will be hiding in caves among the rocks and the mountains, hiding from God. An army of 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be roaming around preaching the gospel with boldness. Hail and fire will fall from the sky, burning up a third of the earth and its trees and all the green grass. Then a great mountain, a meteor, or an asteroid will be thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea will become blood, and a third of all the fish in the sea life will die, and a third of all the ships will be destroyed. Then a great star will fall from heaven, burning like a torch, and a third of all the fresh water will become bitter, and many will be poisoned by drinking this bitter water. The sun and the moon and the stars will be darkened. Tides and crops and temperatures will be out of control. Demonic locusts tormenting the world's population for five months, men seeking death and unable to find it, and now they've just survived the attack of 200 million man demonic army surrounded by this disaster area filled with dead bodies. They will still refuse to repent. Wow. Is that amazing? But you know what's amazing? is that we didn't repent sooner. Amen? There before the grace of God goes every one of us. This just shows the hardness of the heart of man. It's unimaginable that after suffering and the death 
and the terrifying judgments from God, coupled with the preaching of the gospel of the 144,000, the two witnesses and other believers on the planet, these survivors will still refuse to repent. Like those who rejected Jesus after seeing his miracles and hearing him teach the word, having failed to hear the Bibles or heed the Bible's warning, the Bible says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't refuse to repent. So what do they refuse to repent of? What sins did they choose to hang on to rather than turn away from them? Let's finish up by looking at the last point. There's five sins of defiance that they refuse to repent of. Let's begin there, going back again in verse 20. The first sin there is that they will not worship demons and idols of gold. They're not going to give up their idolatry. Things that they had made with their own hands and created to worship. And again, while what men create are nothing, it's important to know that the Bible says that every false god that is created, a demon attaches himself to it. Did you know that? So when someone's worshiping a block of wood, they're really worshiping the enemy. Because you're either worshiping the true and living God, or you're worshiping a false God. And you know what? There are those who have worshiped blocks of wood and seen miraculous things happen, and I don't doubt that's true, because the enemy's doing it to keep them worshiping that false God any way they can. That's why we can't just trust in the miraculous alone. Everything must be compared to the Word of God. Because only the Word of God will tell us the truth. The Bible tells us to worship any idol or false god is to worship the demonic. When people worship gods that do not exist, demons will do what they can to impersonate those gods to hold those people there. Worshiping false gods indeed is the worship of Satan. These same people who just witnessed the consequences of being aligned with Satan will choose to continue to follow him and be destroyed rather than repent and be redeemed. Here's four more sins in the last verse. And they did not repent of their murderers. Here's the thing. In the last days, the, those who come to know Christ, those who align with him, will have a huge target on their back, and they will be martyred. And the people that will be killing them will be the unbelievers. And so they're unwilling to give up their murders. They're trying to seek vengeance against God by killing his people. And that's what will be taking place in a big way during the Great Tribulation. They will seek revenge by killing God's people. Today, this would be those who love violence, something they won't give up or turn away from. The second thing there, it says, or their sorceries. The word there for sorcery is pharmakia. So we get the word for pharmaceuticals. They won't give up their drugs. Is there anything that has more of a stronghold on people today than drugs? And what's interesting is this, these drugs are, you know, they are a pathway or a gateway into the demonic. Satan will use them as a stronghold in someone's life. And you know what? Here's the reality. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And God can deliver us from the bondage to any drug, alcohol, or any struggle that we have because our God is greater. Amen? And you know what? Praise God for that. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with that, you need to know that there's a God who can and will deliver you if you will let him. And there are programs that will be happy, Christian, Christ-centered programs that will be happy to help you and we'll be happy to help you if that's where you are. 
The word pharmakia is also can be translated pharmacon, which refers to poisons and amulets and charms and seances and witchcraft and magic spells and incantations and mediums, any object tied to pagan idolatry. As Christians, I'm not being legalistic when I say this. We should have nothing to do with Ouija boards, fortune tellers, psychics, or astrology, or anything like it. Why? Because we're turning to the enemy for answers when we ought to be turning to God. It's not just a fun game to go to a fortune teller. Because one of two things is true. I think I've told you this story, and I'm running out of time, but I, it's just so appropriate. I, I, you know, most of you guys know that I, I worked in sale, have worked in sales for 22 years, and I call in different businesses. And when I would get assigned certain businesses, I would just throw them in the trash. I just wouldn't call on them. And one of them was psychics. And then one year, God put it on my heart to go call on. I had two psychics assigned to me. And the Lord, I just thought, well, if, if I'm not going to witness to them, I, well, who is? So I'll go out there. And, and the first one, it was the grace of God. Totally the grace of God. I had a chance to witness to this woman and her daughter. They committed their lives to the Lord, and they started attending Calvary San Jose. So God can do that. Amen. Now, the second one I went to, not so much. The second one I went to, I walked in the door, and before I opened my mouth, she said, you have two jobs, this job and another job, and the other job is really the passion of your life, and the reality is you don't even want to be here right now. And I said, you know, with psychics, one of two things is true. They're either liars who make stuff up to spoof people out of their money, or they're under the control of Satan, who tells them the truth. So, I think I figured out which one you are. That wasn't, that wasn't very nice, was it? And I wasn't there very long, and she had a new rep very soon, and I probably would have done that differently if I could do it over again. But the point is that she was accurate. And someone will say, well, I went to a fortune teller, and she was accurate. Well, if she's accurate, where's the information coming from? Right? Remember King Saul went to the witch at Endor? How'd that work out? Not so good. We're not to do that, amen? Why would we go to someone who has fallen and following the the one who wants to destroy you when we can turn to the true and living God who desires to give us clear instruction for life and has given it to us in the 66 books we hold in our hand right here? Amen? We're not to consult with Satan. We're to seek the Lord. Amen? Don't buy the lie of the enemy, by the way, that you can walk in the center of God's will and be doing drugs at the same time. The Bible says, be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't have a time where they're struggling with that. I'm not saying that's a determination of your salvation. What I'm saying is you're outside of God's will if you're doing it, and you're missing out on what God has for you. Amen? He came to have life and life more abundant. And you know what? We don't need spirits if we have the Spirit. Amen? The Holy Spirit is sufficient. If you're addicted to drugs, ask God for help. Fourthly, it says sexual immorality. So they wouldn't give up their violence. They wouldn't give up their idols. They wouldn't give up their drugs and their sorcery and their incantations. And they wouldn't give up their sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality there is pornea. We get the word pornography. Now, in a room this size with this many guys, and I hope I'm wrong, there's bound to be some of you that are struggling with pornography right now. Here's the good news. God can deliver you from that right now. Amen? And you know what? It's not okay. It's sin. It's wrong. It will destroy your marriage. It will, it's taking away from the woman, if you're not married, that you're going to be married to one day. 
God hates it. Satan loves it. We need to, you know what? And you know what? If you say, well, yeah, it's just too tempting. You're right. Because here's the reality. That stuff is piped right into your living room through the internet, right? The guy who would never go to a strip club because someone from church might see him as they're driving by, right? And accountability. But in the darkness of a room with a locked door and your family's asleep, that temptation's heavy. So if you have a struggle with that, I'm going to tell you to do something radical. Get rid of your computer. But I need my computer. But no, you need your marriage and you need your relationship with God to be right more. Amen? You can put filters on there. You know, I know I'm driving this point home, but I did men's ministry for a lot of years. And not a month went by when a guy didn't come up. And so, guys, we all can be tempted. If, if you're not struggling with it, still take the steps to guard yourself against it so you never do struggle with it. Amen? Not only does it speak of pornography, but fornication and adultery and rape and homosexuality. And guys, let's face it, even in the church today, people are redefining what the Bible says about sex. Let me make it very clear to you. God created sex and it's good, but only where he created it to be, and that is within the confines of marriage. Amen? When I was a youth pastor, I used to say that sex is like fire. Fire, where it belongs, in the fireplace, good. You can warm your house. You can cook your food. That's a good thing, right? Fire in the drapes, bad. (laughs) Will burn your house down, right? And here's the point. God created it. It's a good thing, but only in the confines which he created it to be. Women, if a guy is, is trying to get you to have sex with him before you are married to him, run. I don't care how godly you think he is. He's not that godly. If he's disrespecting you that way, and he's trying, oh, if you love me, if you, you know what? If he loved you, he wouldn't do that to you. Amen? And bring him down here. We got some big pastors. We'll take care of him, okay? <laughs> I'm totally kidding. So they would not give up their idolatry, their murders, their drugs, their sexual morality for God. They had to choose between all that and God. And they said, well, I'd rather have that. Nothing new under the sun. And finally, their thefts. And again, like morality, honesty will be non-existent, especially as people are competing for the dwindling supplies of food and clothing and water and shelter in a time like this. There'll be theft and, I mean, there'll just be no morality. It'll be immorality running rampant. Man won't let go and trust God to provide, but will try to take care of it himself. Now, the first four commandments are wrapped up in chapter in verse uh, 20. And then in verse 21, we see the, we have the second half of the commandments. You know, the first half of the commandments, no other gods before me, no graven image. You shall not take the Lord thy name, Lord's name in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These are all man's relationships to God. Well, that's what that idolatry is going to destroy. And then secondly, you have honor your mother and father. You shall not kill, steal, lie, commit adultery, or covet. Well, almost all those are covered in verse 21. It's the breaking of the law to fulfill my flesh, to feed my flesh what it desires, even though I know that in the end it will bring destruction. This is heartbreaking to the heart of God. You know what? God judges sin, and sin has consequences, but God allows it that we might look up. So in closing, let not your hearts be hardened. When our hearts become hard, we fool ourselves into thinking that the time of God's righteous judgment will never come. That if his judgment does come, we will somehow escape it. 
And even in the face of righteous judgment, we will refuse to repent. Let me say this too. As as we were going through some of those things, no doubt some, if not many of us, were convicted because we're involved in those things. Don't leave here condemned. Let's pray together. He'll separate that sin as far as the east is from the west. You'll be forgiven and ask the Lord by the power of his Holy Spirit to strengthen you to walk in the center of his will going forward. Guys, we're going to sin every day. Is that true or not? At the same time, shouldn't our desire to be holy because he is holy? When we sin, it should bring us to our knees. Don't let the enemy condemn you because because of it, but it should drive you to a place of brokenness before the Lord to get right with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are a God of love and grace and mercy. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, that indeed today would be the day of salvation. Lord, that they would not harden their hearts the way so many will in the last days. Lord, we know it's not the convincing words of men that bring salvation. It's, it's your Holy Spirit drawing each of us unto yourself. If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. To become a Christian, we must repent. We must turn away from the person we were. We can't do that on our own. And ask God to come and rule and reign in our lives, to be on the throne of our lives, to surrender to him. So the way we do that is we must first confess we're sinners, ask him to be not just our savior, but the Lord of our life. And if we ask him to do that, he will forgive us. If that's your desire this morning, to know for sure that you're going to heaven, to have your sin forgiven, to be redeemed, I just want you to do something real simple. Just raise your hand so I can pray with you. We can come before the throne of God and you can be saved. Anybody here at all? Today's the day of salvation. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you, brother. Anybody else? Anybody else? Let's harden out our hearts this morning. Anybody else? If you raise your hand, I just want you to pray this with me. Don't be ashamed. We love you. We're with you. Pray this with me out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus Christ is God. That he died for my sin and that he rose from the dead. Help me to walk with you. Fill me with your spirit. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Here's the great news. The Bible says that, again, I say this every time because it's worth repeating, that when one person is saved, all the angels in heaven rejoice. So there's a party in heaven. There ought to be one in here right now. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, you are no longer the person you used to be. You are a new creation in Christ and you are going to heaven and the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, what you get to do as your first act as a Christian is we're now going to a time of communion. And communion is for believers. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So the elements are going to be passed. The worship team will play a song. Take a moment, examine your own heart before God, spend some time with him. And in a moment, I'll come up. We'll take the elements together. Okay, let's do that.